Welcome to Your Path to Real Wealth, where we explore how to cultivate real wealth, which is so much more than money. It's the sum quality of our values, relationships, health, sense of purpose, time, charitable giving, legacy, and more. Your path to real wealth begins now. Welcome back to Your Path to Real Wealth. I'm Jeff Brimhall, and I'm here with my co-host, Benjamin Cummings. Ben, we're excited for another great episode today. Can you tell us about our guest? You bet. We are very excited to have Sarah Newcomb with us today. Sarah started with uh, Hello Wallet years ago, was uh, later transitioned to Morningstar. And she and I have known each other for quite a while. Uh, we've worked on some projects in the past together, and we're very excited for her to come on, especially because she's recently just launched a new firm called Thrive Financial Empowerment Center. And so maybe to, to Sarah, we're, we're glad to have you here. Do you want to introduce yourself and talk to us about this new venture? Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so the new venture, Thrive, what I'm doing there is trying to go back to my roots in financial education. This is my true happy place. And what I envision is a generation of empowered people, people who are empowered with a, um, a flexible knowledge of resource management. And and let me just say I not to start on a downer but the reason why I have felt so strongly about this for a long time is that I think we are seeing a convergence of a lot of different forces on our young people. We have uh, growing income inequality, we have generations of climate change and social injustice and um and a growing disillusionment in the American dream and more and more people who have either been shut out for generations or are feeling that they no longer can can compete or keep up. And I think it's we have a we have an epidemic of despair and hopelessness of uh, young people who look at their future and don't see very many options. And the the pursuit of wealth is uh, one that I think people find rather empty. And more and more, I think each each successive generation looks at the pursuit of wealth for wealth itself and says, I don't really want any part of that game. And so financial education that focuses on math and teaching the rules of a game that people don't want to play in the first place is not going to be very effective. So I feel that we need a different type of approach. We need to reach across that uh, that emotional divide and and empower young people to learn not math, but resourcefulness. And the tagline that I've got for Thrive is a life you love with the resources you have. And that I think is the real vision is how do you learn how no matter where you're starting, you can build a life you love from the resources you have. If you have some simple, flexible knowledge of economics and of psychology. So that's my vision is an empowered generation uh, of people that are building lives they love from the resources they have. I love that. I love that. Now, you have the word thrive in your new firm name as well. And I think that's such a great word. Can you tell us why you chose the word thrive and, and kind of what that embodies for you? Yeah. I mean, it's to me, it's it's vibrant. It's about, um, you know, life is is either thriving or it is wilting 
And, and I don't think it's necessarily like thriving isn't necessarily growth in the sense of getting bigger and bigger. We go through different stages of growth. And sometimes that growth is in maturity or in complexity, not necessarily size. And so when we associate thriving with growth, endless growth, we end up in really unsustainable patterns saying, well, if I'm not growing, I'm dying. But there are different ways to grow. And I think thriving really encapsulates this, the idea of of maturing in such a way that is vibrant and alive and joyful and uh, fulfilling and all those things. We all want to thrive. And so it really just encapsulated to me what the end goal of any kind of financial management is. I can see how that fits really well in with your tagline that really that's your goal is to help them thrive with the resources yeah. they have. And, and Sarah, before uh, the show, we were talking a little bit and you mentioned this famous study of if people make at least $75,000 uh, per year, maybe they're happy, but you, you mentioned a new study that's come out and addresses that a little bit. Can you talk to some of the findings of that new study? Yeah. So this is great. I think it's great for a couple of reasons. Um, number one is that I think it shows the maturity of of science and the process of being willing as a scientist to discover things that counteract what you may have discovered previously. And so there was this famous study that um, has been cited, oh gosh, thousands of times now, um, because it made it made headlines. It was basically this idea that there was this threshold that more money brought more well-being up to the point of about $75,000. And then after that, it was like diminishing happiness. And so, you know, there's this, this threshold. Once you were earning $75,000 a year, you know, more money wasn't really going to make you significantly happier. And people just jumped on this idea because it's a compelling one, right? But the researchers later, you know, there were some challenges that came up to it over time as scientists challenge one another. And the research went back and um, and did more digging. And, and another paper was recently published that basically showed that what is really happening is that for many people, well-being does continue to increase after that threshold. Um, but for some, it does not. And the difference between the people who continue to increase in well-being after achieving a certain amount of wealth and those who don't basically comes down to uh, beliefs, personal temperament, and uh, personal attitudes. So people who are unhappy in general, people who are anxious in general, really there's no number that's going to make them feel happy. They can get wealthy and they're still not going to be happy. And others who are internally uh, more positive are going to, you know, more money does, it's more opportunity to do things they love and to be happier. And so I think, and obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying very, very much, but the, the idea being that what, what I find compelling about this research is that I think it highlights the fact that it's it really is not about the numbers. It's about the stories that we tell ourselves. And some of us have healthy attitudes and some of us do not. And if we are rooted in fear and anxiety and comparisons, then no number is going to make us feel satisfied. And if we, on the other hand, learn how to define and embody the idea of enough for us and what is the good life for me, 
then we're more likely to be able to achieve well-being kind of regardless of the numbers. I've often heard that money is an amplifier and it just amplifies whatever we are. And so if we're generous, it makes us more generous. And if we're, as you said, unhappy, it might even make us more unhappy to to have that and realize, hey, this didn't even help me get happier. What are your thoughts about that money being an amplifier? Yeah, I often say money turns up the volume on what's already there. You know, you have a million dollars, you now have a million new ways to express who you already are. And it's not that money doesn't change us. You know, if you suddenly have hundreds of millions where you didn't before, that will change your life. And that is the numbers matter because they affect the opportunities that we have. But what matters more is the internal environment, not the external one. Great. So if you're unhappy, you should work on becoming happy first and not think that just earning more money is going to fix that for you. Yeah. Wonderful. So let's talk about some additional research. You've done some research on psychological barriers to sound money management. And what are some of those barriers that people face? Yeah. And and this research was motivated by looking at the the financial advice and self-help world and seeing lots of books like The Millionaire Mind and Think and Grow Rich and all of that, right? And I started to get really curious having grown up in and near and around poverty. I wanted to know if there are evidence-based, you know, is there evidence to show that there are specific patterns of thinking that hold us back? ways that we unconsciously self-sabotage ourselves financially. And so I started to investigate the psychological barriers to sound money management, looking for habits of mind that had been systematically associated with uh, negative financial behaviors. And what I found by looking at decades of psychology research and uh, consumer psychology and marketing and social psychology was that there are a couple of things that really do seem to be involved in many of the damaging decisions that we can make financially. One of them is short-term thinking. And we are, by our natures, we're planners as creatures, but we're not 40-year planners, most of us. Um, we, We have to generally, most of us have to train ourselves to think more than, say, five or 10 years into the future. Some people are fortunate enough to be very long-term thinkers by nature, and they generally don't have a problem with things like saving and long-term investing because they naturally think that way. And I'm so happy for them. I am not one of them. And most people that I've asked when I've done surveys and I've said, you know, how when you think about your financial future... How far ahead do you tend to think and plan? And the options I give are days, weeks, months, years, decades, or generations. Now, most financial advisors are thinking in decades or generations because they've been trained to. But most people are thinking months or sometimes a few years ahead. So it's like a natural, a normal distribution with people thinking months, maybe a few years ahead. And so, you know, that's fine in terms of survival and and, um, immediate security, but it doesn't prepare us for a world where we need to fund 20 plus years of life when we're not working. So 
that is that natural tendency to think short term or at least shorter term than our lives demand, than our financial reality demands, is something that if we want to be good with money, we've got to consciously start to train ourselves to think longer term. And by doing that, then we will internally be more motivated to do the things that help support long-term financial well-being. You don't plan for a future you're not picturing. And as we get older, we do naturally start to think longer term. The problem is that by the time we, our brains catch up to the idea of needing to do this preparation, it's usually too late. I mean, unfortunately, I've talked to so many financial advisors who, you know, one of the hardest parts of their job is when somebody comes in, you know, in their mid fifties, they have no savings and they're like, I want to retire in 10 years. How can I do it? And they have to say, that's really not realistic. And they, and they're thinking, I've got 15 years left. I should be fine. Right. But 15 years isn't very long in the scheme of retirement planning. So, it's really hard to motivate ourselves in our 20s to plan for our 70s and 80s. And one of the things that makes it really hard is this natural tendency to not be looking 40 years, 50 years ahead. So that's one of the things that if we can make that unconscious conscious, then we can start to be in a better position. So short-term thinking is something we all probably struggle with to some extent, more some more so than others. And the you know, if you're only thinking a few days ahead, for example, you're going to have a really hard time being a saver. Um, but it's also, I I have to say, like there are just like with the happiness study, there's a threshold below which you really can't thrive. There is a living wage. There is a certain amount of money that you need to be able to baseline be okay. And so below that amount, it's not about your attitude. It's about survival, you know? And similar with, with um, short-term thinking, when you live in financial chaos, when you live amidst great uncertainty, you can't think far ahead because there really isn't enough stability in your life to be able to plan. And so these things become a natural feedback loop, right? Where if you live in uncertainty and chaos, you can't plan ahead, which means you make by sort of default myopic decisions, which perpetuate the uncertainty and chaos. And so it feeds back in on itself and people end up in debt traps and, and poverty traps. On the flip side, if you have some stability and you can think ahead, then you have the privilege of being able to make more long-term decisions, which then help create more stability, which allows you to then think further and further ahead. And so there's, it's going to either be a vicious cycle or a virtuous cycle. And we can't necessarily intervene at the uncertainty level. If you're in chaos, you're in chaos. And there's, there are things you can do to try to start to control the chaos. But one thing that we can all control is our mental time horizon. How far ahead are we trying to look? And so if you're in chaos and you can't plan more than a few days ahead, don't try to go 40 years. Try to go two weeks. Build that stability slowly. Build enough stability to then be able to start thinking three weeks or a month ahead. 
And, and then it will build on itself. Then you get the momentum going in the right direction, but over time, you can't just flip a switch and go from days to, to decades. It doesn't work like that. Hey, in your book loaded, you talk about money messages. What are money messages and what are some examples? Yeah. So, I mean, money messages are everywhere, right? Because we don't talk openly about money, but we talk about it all the time through our clothes and our cars and our neighborhoods and the schools we go to and the places we shop or the places we don't shop. I mean, we're constantly sending signals to one another about our economic situation, or at least what we want people to perceive our our economic situation to be. And so these messages, I mean, we're steeped in them from birth. And most of them, I think we take in and internalize without realizing it. So let me give some examples of money messages. Uh, well, I mean, a very common one is the uh, misquote of, of the Bible that says uh, money is the root of all evil, right? The The actual scripture goes differently. It's money is a root of all kinds of evil. Or no, I'm sorry. It's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, uh, according to one translation. And the, there's a pretty significant difference between those two messages. One of them says that or claims that money has innate power within itself to corrupt. And I would say there are a lot of people who really believe that, who really feel that way. The other one says that human beings are vulnerable to greed and to uh, to the seductive forces of power and the things that money can bring. And in one case, money is this money, the power of corruption is within this innate, this this inanimate object. And in the other one, it's human choice. And um, and so depending on which, which perspective you grew up with, you may fear the corrupting power of money. You may not want to, you may not be comfortable earning a lot or having a lot or associating with people who do. Um, I mean, let me give you another extreme. I was at a, a charity event and uh, there was a woman I was sitting next to and she just very casually but vehemently said, all billionaires are sociopaths. <laughs> and this is a this is a, a view. It wasn't the first time I'd heard that view. And um, I, I, there are, there's a lot of, of pent up anger and frustration in people who see the very wealthy and feel that they are, you know, they have beliefs about how money works that has them thinking that these people are just, you know, taking all the resources for themselves and taking them away from everyone else. And who would do that except a sociopath? But these are the messages that we are all exposed to. On the other hand, you know, there's there's this like uh, unspoken worship of wealth and the wealthy, and um, and so there there are thousands, millions of money messages that we've all been exposed to, and the ones that we take in are the ones that become our worldview. And the thing that happens is that we each sort of come to adulthood with a whole bunch of attitudes and beliefs about money and what it means to have it or not have it, um, what it means about who you are, who you're not, and what you can and can't do in the world. And 
we think it's just truth with a capital T that this is the way things are. And we don't recognize, you know, we're taught to think critically about so many things in the world, but we're not very often taught to think critically about our own financial perspectives and to realize that most of our money beliefs are actually inherited. And if we don't examine them and question them, then we're going to walk around making decisions in our financial lives that may not even be rooted in our own values and perspectives. So the value of examining the money messages that you've internalized is, uh, I think, a great one. I think there's a lot of value in doing it. You may find that you believe all, all those money messages deeply and you want to carry them with you into the future, in which case, fantastic. Now you can move with more confidence into the future. Uh, but you may also find some that are not working for you and haven't worked for the people who taught them to you. And in those cases, you then have the opportunity to challenge them. And that's where great change can happen. And you can free yourself from unconscious self-sabotage if you can find the unhealthy or unhelpful beliefs that are in your personal perspective. Sarah, with uh, these messages that we tell ourselves and the context that we live in, it, it sounds like our decision-making gets quite complex. How do we keep things simple? Like, how do we, you know, with, with everything you've discussed, how do we make it manageable and, and simple enough to actually proceed forward? And like you said earlier, thrive. Yeah, yeah, I love it. You're reminding me, um, one of my former uh, colleagues said once, you know, about behavioral science, there's this metaphor that like, our unconscious mind is the is this elephant, and our, our conscious mind is the rider, and, um, and that we are trying to steer the elephant. And he said of a lot of behavioral science, he said, I don't know, I think we're just confusing the elephant. <laughs> That's good. And I think, you know, it it's, it can be so true, you know, we have all these great studies and really cool ideas and things that we learn. And then it becomes like, but what am I supposed to do with all this? It's very complex. Of course, human decision making is incredibly complex. And so, yeah, it does, it does come down to finding a way to think about your own decision making that is simple enough to be useful. It, sim as simple as possible, but not too simple. You know, if it's too simple, then it won't really be useful if it's too complex again it's not useful because you can't you can't really <laughs> make decisions so there are a couple of basic concepts that i focus on and basically zero math because the math i think is secondary what really matters is that you understand the big picture concepts so that you can build a strategy and then the math is the tactics and the financial products are the tactics, but you need a strategy first. So let's talk about first building a life you love. So there's a really simple concept from psychology known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it basically comes down to the idea that there are at least five sort of levels or not levels, hierarchy is actually a misnomer. It's really five categories of needs that help humans feel great about life. And so our most immediate needs are our survival needs, food, shelter, clothing, transportation, right? 
Then we have our physiological needs, and that's the need for safety, the need for some sense of reliability or predictability in the world around us. And then we have our uh, needs for love and belonging and connectedness to other humans. And then our esteem needs, the needs to value and respect ourselves and the need for for esteem from others. And then our self-actualization needs, the needs for meaning and purpose. And the thing about it is that it's not a hierarchy in the sense that our survival needs are more important than our self-actualization needs. They're not. Uh, They're more immediate. If you had none of your needs met, you would care about survival first, but Maslow himself had said that if anyone is deficient in any of these needs, he could be seen as unwell. And we know this. I mean, we can survive without love and belonging and purpose, but we don't enjoy it. Makes you know? sense. And so, so we need all of these things to thrive. And so a life you love is a life that's crafted in such a way that you have specific strategies for meeting all of your needs, for for a sense of purpose and meaning and connection and belonging and safety and survival. All these things are met. You can meet them with many different strategies, and all those different strategies have different price tags. So... Living a life you love is is deciding what is my purpose? What is my meaning? What makes me feel connected to others? How how do I thrive on all these levels of Maslow's hierarchy, right? Now, doing that with the resources you have means how can I choose strategies in such a way that within the confines of my income and my, my resources... I can be thriving on all cylinders. So this requires a little bit of economics. And so the simplest way that I've come to explain economics is this, personal economics. There are three factors of production, land, labor, and capital. Those are the three ways that economics teaches us we can produce income. Now, some people are fortunate enough that they are born with enough land and capital that they never need to labor. They don't need income from labor. Lucky them. But most of us find ourselves in the opposite. The only way that we have when we start out is to produce income is through our labor. So if you find yourself in that situation, your first investment should be in making your labor as valuable as possible in the marketplace. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean college. It means skills. It means you find your special sauce. You find the thing that you love to do that other people need and will pay you for. The thing you love to do, you're good at, and other people will pay will pay you for it, right? And so you you make that income stream as large as you can by doing what you love that other people need. Now, once you've done that, then you have to find a way to take some of the income you're generating from your labor. And if you ever want to stop laboring, you're going to need income from what? Land or capital. Or capital. Right? Land and or capital. So once you've got your income stream going, then you have to start diverting some of it over into land and capital to build those up over time. 
and land, you know, that can be real estate, it could be buying forestry property, it can be all sorts of things. There's many ways that you can get land to generate income for you. Um, And there's many ways that you can get financial and physical capital to generate income for you. But once you get them generating income and you reinvest that, then eventually the income from those will become large enough that you can stop laboring. And now you're in the very enviable position of those people that we thought were so lucky in the beginning, right? Now you have enough income from land and capital that you can stop laboring. So that is the strategy. That's the financial strategy. Your tactics will be unique to you. And along the way, you want to be doing doing this in such a way that even at the beginning, you're living a life you love. You don't have to wait until the end of the road to live a life you love because you can you can be fulfilled on all the levels of Maslow's hierarchy with very inexpensive strategies if you're creative. That's great. Sarah, this is great. I, I think what you're trying to convey is very much in line with what we view as as real wealth. But we, we'd love to hear your thoughts on really as we wrap up, what what is real wealth to you? And how does that fit into this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I sound like a broken record, but real wealth is living a life you love within the resources you have. Because if you if you're trying to do it outside of your means, then you you will eventually not feel secure and you won't truly love that life because you'll be unsettled. And if you are just pursuing building resources but you're not thriving on all the levels of human uh psychology, then, you know, it's great. You're living within your means, but you're, you know, the numbers have to work, but your life has to work too. Um, And so I think true wealth is, is finding that, that picture of life for you personally, for you, for me, one of the things that true wealth means to me is sipping my coffee while watching water sparkle, (laughs) you know, and, and finding finding those things that bring you true joy and then and then using your resources to support creating that life that's true wealth and that could look it looks so different for many many people but it's if it doesn't light you up it's not real wealth well said well said. Sarah, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for your time today and for the insights that you shared. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. So thank you for being here with us. Thank you. And thank you to those uh, who have been listening. We hope you enjoy this content. We hope it's been help- helpful in your journey to create real wealth. Uh, if you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe, tell your friends. And if you've got specific questions where we can help, please reach out. You can find us on our website, bluebarnwealth.com, and we'd be happy to help however we can. Thanks again. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to Your Path to Real Wealth from Blue Barn Wealth. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and click the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and any guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Blue Barn Wealth. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for personalized investment advice. Because everyone's situation is unique, always seek the advice of a qualified financial professional with any questions you may have.